So all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, um, now we've gotten to the doctrine of God. And uh, it's, this passage is vital to that doctrine, that teaching of under understanding who God is and therefore what God has done for us. Understand that without scripture, we would not know who God truly is. Who do the heathen think that God is? You know, there are all kinds of answers, right? It's infinite. Um, and then specifically, what has God done for us? Without scripture, we would not know that. But apart from scripture, in what, we're, in what we call the natural knowledge of God, knowing about God from nature. For example, this passage, Hebrews 3, 4, every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. This is the basic um, passage we use in catechism class to teach the natural knowledge of God. This is day one of, of catechism. The natural knowledge of God. What do we learn about God from nature? God is powerful. God exists. God uh, made everything. God is the builder. God has a design for things. Um, and it goes on and on. The, it's, it's also difficult because it remains a mystery. The, the, the nature of God. Um, about all mysteries, the Bible is silent and on account of the weakness of the human mind. But just the existence of God is important for uh, a couple of reasons. Let's um, just look at this. It's necessary to prove this point of just the existence of God on account of those who deny God directly and indirectly. Directly, that is, unbelievers who deny that he exists at all, and for those who deny him indirectly, which are people who doubt. So for the sake of both of them, I want to be able to prove that God exists. That Hebrews passage is really useful for that. Just as every house has a builder, so God is the builder of everything. I can't necessarily look down a row of houses and say who the builder is or was, right? Although in some cases, in New Ulm, is it possible to look at a house and say who the builder was? There are all kinds of clues. Yeah, there's that. There's in, in, in a certain older homes in New Ulm. I know that the Balgies live in a home like this. In the living room, if you have a certain raised portion that involves uh, decorative tin going around, those are all built by a, a particular peculiar turn-of-the-century builder. There's also that red brick that we see in certain homes that were from the same era, not necessarily what, who the builder was and so forth. Um, my dad had and still has the habit, since he began um, painting and, and, and putting on wallpaper in the late 40s, my dad has always had a signature he leaves under the wallpaper. Um, there you will find a valentine with a heart drawn through it with his initials and my mother's initials and a year. 
And how many times have my brother and I been scraping wallpaper off an old wall and there, there's not one Valentine, but two or three, all by my dad. RS, 1949, 1958, 1966, 1974, you know, and, on, and, and now, oh, here comes dad with a new one in 1984 or whatever it is. And Valentine, because he, he would do that. Um, and I'm sorry, that's only because the, 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 the homeowner changes their mind. Dad's wallpaper lasts forever. So, doesn't doesn't fall. And why does dad's wallpaper not fall? Because he made my brother and I do the grunt work of sizing the wall first. So it stays up. It doesn't peel. Um, Also, the doctrine of God is important for us to, to establish in order to strengthen our faith. It's always beneficial to explore what the scriptures say about anything and everything. Always to our benefit. Um, You can go crazy on certain studies of what the word of God says, even if you know Hebrew like the back of your hand, because if you get into things like what are the actual identities of the birds in the forbidden animals chapters, you're going to really begin to wonder about some of those birds. What really is this? I know the NIV says it's a 12th kind of an owl, but what really is that bird in between the ibis and the cormorant? You know, and why would Moses list an owl in there somewhere? Why isn't it something else, like a kingfisher or something? But but still beneficial um, about all of these things. Why even think about that? Well, because some of those animals, for example, show up in the prophets screaming in the desert. And now what creature is it? You know, or running around crazy uh, like, a, like, a, like a horse that's been burned with an iron. Well, what bird runs around crazy like a, like a burned horse? An ostrich. You know, stuff like that. You do, and, or a female camel in heat. You know, she's all over the place, depending on, on the word. And it can help to understand some of those things so you get what God is saying. And so otherwise, some of those prophecies have, what did Pastor Sutton used to say? They have a sameness to them. And each one is similar to the next one. And what's the difference? What's, because Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't shoot an arrow into the middle of a doctrine. Greek does. That's the nature of the Greek language. Hebrew does what? It puts a dotted line all the way around the outside. Like when my mother would use a knife to cut the shape of the dough, you know, and then remove the rest. That's what Hebrew does. It removes the excess. It says out to here. And now this is going to be what we're talking about. That's what Hebrew does. So picture, 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 picture. But Greek just shoots an arrow right into the heart of the matter. That's the, that, why is the New Testament so much shorter than the Old? Partly because of that. Partly. Okay. So God is, by his essence and according to his nature, do you see that long list and all that blank space? Alrighty. God is, first of all, Spirit. Uh, that's just John 4.24, God is spirit. Um, but this, this attribute of God, 
By the way, the attributes of God are all of those things that God has. And if you remove any one of them, he ceases to be God. For example, what are your attributes? Be careful, because there are essential attributes and there are accidental attributes. For example, is it an essential attribute? Would I cease to be me if one of my accidental attributes, like having ten fingers, what if one of those vanished? Am I still me? Yes. Yeah. Am I a little bit different than me? Yes. A little bit, but, but I'm still me, right? So if I get caught stealing in Iraq and they cut off my right hand, am I still me? Yes. Yeah, that's an accidental attribute. What are the essential attributes? Well, God doesn't have any accidental attributes. They're all essential attributes. So you can't take any of them away. First of all, he is spirit. So this is really um, uh, against all of the pagan notions that God might look like an animal or that as the, many of the Greeks thought, that God is fire. And so if we're going to worship God, we have to light a fire. And the thing about that Greek notion that if God is there, we have to light a fire, that crept into not only Greece, but the conquerors of, of the Greeks were the Romans. And where do we see fire involved, especially in worship? Or if I'm going to pray, I have to light a candle. In Rome, that's a, that's a Roman thing. So, uh, and in fact, in a Greek Orthodox church, you won't even necessarily see that, but you will in Roman churches where light candles, light candles, light candles. They'll say it's for this and that reason, but it, it kind of comes out of that previous era, epoch. Yeah? Oh, the eternal flame. Can I just tell you a story about that? A brother of mine in the ministry called me and said, we have a problem with the eternal flame fund. They, they, a family at this church, in our, it's, it's, in, it's in this area, um, a family had begun a fund to by eventually they hope. And if you don't know what an eternal flame is, it's, uh, it's an electric light, usually in a red case, that hangs as if it's a candle and it has a little flicker to it. Like, uh, like the old, uh, um, outside some bars, there are uh, uh, lights that change, right? I'm thinking of the drunken clam, the, the, where, the, where the clam will open its mouth and then the... And then the Stuff will guzzle down, and then it's a clam again, and so forth, and so forth. Anyway, um, so they had this fund. I don't know how much one costs. I don't know thirty bucks, but they had a fund, and for years they would give like two dollars and four dollars to this fund. Well, they had all of their money finally, and then along came somebody else saying, "Oh, I think we should have an eternal flame," and they just bought one. So now what just happened? The family had this long-standing fund, but somebody else bought it. Now what do we do with the fund? And the pastor, his problem was, I think, that he didn't understand a doctrine 
of how, the, how a church handles its finances and funding. He didn't understand what I call the plastic elephant rule. Just because somebody donates a giant life-size plastic elephant and they say it's for worship doesn't mean the church has to put it in the sanctuary or use it for worship. You donate it, you've donated it. You don't get to dictate how we use it. That's the truth about, about these things. If you donate to a fund and it's, it's a fund for a ministry that we have, we will try to honor that. But if somebody goes overboard with something like what I'm going to call the plastic elephant, we're not required by law to honor that necessarily, especially if it might be misunderstood or misused or something along those lines. So they now have two, they, they now have an eternal flame. What the, what the council decided was we have to buy the second eternal flame. Except they didn't call it the eternal flame. They call it the Holy Spirit candle. So what they ended up with was two Holy Spirit candles and now their children are confused. Aren't there two Holy Spirits? And that pastor's successor now gets that question in catechism every year. And I keep telling him, take one down. You have a daughter congregation. Put it up there. You know, what are you, what are you doing? This causes, you see why we don't necessarily have to do this? If it causes confusion or a doctrinal mix-up? then no, don't use it for that. Use it for something else. Um, but anyway, so uh, that's, that's the, okay, God is spirit. Uh, also, our, our dogmaticians will also say this is uh, for the sake of God's dignity um, because the, the more noble has no body. Um, and there are passages about that as well. Let's go on. God is infinite. God is un, unlimited by time, space, place. This is similar but not identical to the doctrine of his omnipresence, but just his infinity. Um, also, he alone is infinite. There is no place where God is not, including where? Hell. What's God doing in hell? He's punishing. Yeah. Okay, uh, God is invisible. I'm sorry, any questions as we're going along? Well, you're, you're good at asking questions. God is invisible, that is non-material. Um, he did take assumed forms for the sake, especially of the Old Testament patriarchs, appearing as the angel of the Lord and so forth, but typically those were angels or angelic appearances. Um, uh, and, but a, a question remains here. Will we see God... In heaven. Um, let me just say that you might be tempted to answer quickly, but our Lutheran dogmaticians hesitate to answer quickly because of the crazy answers on both sides. And it probably would be wise to take a middle ground here. So, yes, see him, but will it be a physical seeing or will it be a spiritual seeing? Which one will it be? Well, if scripture says we will see him, can I leave that and just go on to the next one? You know, and say, I'll find out about that when I'm in heaven. Yeah, with my own eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But the question still remains is that, you know, the, 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 the dogmaticians go around about this. Go ahead. All I know is it's almost always uh, a mistake to superimpose our science, technology, definitions on ancient terms. Not, it's, it's, it's often not a good idea. You're going to lead, your lead yourself down some strange paths there. You're going to end up wondering if a camel has a catalytic converter. And it just, it's, it's, it, that's not the place to go there. Yeah. yeah. Except Christ in heaven is before Yeah, they're specifically talking about God the Father here and the, and the Spirit and so forth. Yes, of course, Jesus retains his physical body in heaven. Um, then the next one, which maybe is the most difficult to understand, is, uh, oh no, not, not invisible. Invisible is, we, we understand, non-material. Um, and so forth. That really was what I was part of what I was getting at with um, when I said infinite. But that God is simple. The simplicity of God. Um, simple here is the phys- philosophical idea that God is not a mixture of any other things. Um, and there are, in, um, in, in a way of talking about something in an orderly fashion, there are seven modes of composition. I don't expect you to write these all down. Uh, um, And I'm not going to pause very much, but if you want me to, I'll slow down. But first of all, uh, the first mode of composition is that there are quantitative parts to a body, more than one piece, feet, hands, toes, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. How many pieces are there in in an amoeba? There's one cell, but how many parts? And now you have, you know, a, a difference of opinion there. But with God, God is one. We're gonna we're gonna come back and land on that quite a bit. Deuteronomy six four, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's one direction where some dogmaticians like Gerhardt go. And Hollitz, not sure that they all go there, but but there's all but but there is a difference in persons uh, in the Trinity, and so we don't quite end up with homogeneous. But number uh, two is that there is a material and a form that is a composition, but God is simple, and we've already seen formless because spirit. I should say without form, not formless. Those are doctrinally two different things. Um, he, uh, also, number three, uh, a mode of composition is that there is a difference. And here we have genus or species. But with God, there isn't a difference. Father and spirit are both spirit in the same way. And when was the son spirit? Until his incarnation. Yeah. So until what? Do you know what the calendar says is the incarnation of Christ? When did Mary get pregnant? March. Well, uh, the date. You're, you're right. 
No, no, the, the other, March. Diana. Yeah, March 24th. Yeah, March 24th. Because he's born precise, you know, you go precisely out the 40 weeks to December 25th. You're going to land on the incarnation on either March 25th or March 24th. Yeah. Some of us weren't born until March 26th. All right. Number four, uh, that there is a subject and an accident as with any created substance, that there is a substance and an accident. There we get to the number of fingers. But if you remove anything from God, he's no longer God. Not that we could. But you can't take away his holiness, his grace, and have him still be God, or his infinity and so forth. Number um, five, actuality and potentiality, that is what one might be. God doesn't have a might be. He is he is. There you get that statement in the burning bush. I am. I am that I am. One of the most profound sentences in scripture. Um, number six, that there is an individual substance and nature. Um, but God simply is and he is simple. Number seven, that there is a being and an essence as opposed to a different being or essence. He simply is. There isn't an alternate. Like for example, there isn't a, a negative or evil or wicked God who is, for example, the father's brother or something like that. And most of the pagan religions do that, don't they? But that's not the way that it works. Go ahead. Is this what the Athanasian Creed was trying to get? Not all of these. Not all of these. I'm, 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 I'm in 1620 here. Not in, not in uh, 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 710 or the, the Athanasian Creed date. Um, uh, that there is, oh, also, um, oh, that was number seven anyway, wasn't it, of being in essence. God is, God is a composite of none of these things. God simply is. His divine essence is simple and, and undivided. And the more undivided and strong a thing is, the more simple it is. Consider, it, consider that in terms of, say, a government. The more, the more undivided it is, the more unified it is. You know. um, so, and then ultimately, the simpler it is, the thing is. All right, that was simple. Perfect, Leviticus 19.2. And most of these have, in fact, all of these have really two sides besides the definition, which is what here is for our comfort and what here is for our um, our encouragement or uh, to what is God spurring us on toward. Um, and in perfection, he wipes away our, in our imperfection and he inspires our love. We acknowledge our own imperfection and strive to be like him. Under eternal, God is not just very, 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 very old, but the Hebrew term for for, for forever is olam and it really just means unbounded time it's so long I can't count it that doesn't necessarily mean infinite um, but, but uh, in most contexts it's also countered with a parallel term saying without beginning or without end so very 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 old and no beginning that's where we get infinite and so forth or eternal and for our consolation, what in God also endures forever? His mercy. There's, 
comfort there for us too. Um, and also before the depths were formed, God was there. So reminding us that he predates the creation, of course. Was God bored in, in infinity? No. He and, and what's, the, what's the verb tense you have to use? What does God say? He doesn't say I was. He says I am. Yeah. Now, take that for your comfort into your own experience of eternity. Will I get bored in heaven? What will I be in heaven? I am. God gives us that hint about what things will be like. It'll be in the moment, in the now. Um, why is a dog happy most of the time? Because a dog lives in the moment, in the now. Lord, let me be more dog-like and less cat-like because the, my cats only plot my ultimate demise. I know that. I know what they're looking at when they stare at me. Yeah, Ultimately. Um, God is immutable. Anybody know what immutable means? Yeah. I didn't get there, did I? Yeah. Changeless. Immutable is, by the way, not affected by things like the creation. That was always his plan. God did not change himself when he went from there's nothing to there's everything. He, that was his plan, was to make everything. God's immutability is also not affected by our repentance. Because God invites repentance. Or when God says, I'm sorry I made them, or something along those lines. That's his essence. To invite change in us. And God's immutability, his changelessness, is not affected by the incarnation of Christ. Because while that might seem like a major change, it wasn't a change in God's plan. It was always his plan for our salvation was that he would come down, be incarnate, and so forth. Um, God is immortal. Um, he lives always. And, and the difference between immortal and... Um, uh, we're going to come up on... What am I equating this with? Eternal. Well, we already had. Eternal is no end. Immortal is looked at it from a positive way, rather, that he always lives, that he always is. That, and that also, when, when this is stressed in Scripture, his actions for our benefit are stressed. Not simply that it's a quality of God, but that he's been working always for us. When I teach the doctrine of election, every, every illustration limps. But I like to use uh, for kids the idea that God put your name up on a, a whiteboard or a bulletin board when you were born. And then he filled in history. But it's all under your name. Because what he had in mind was that you would be affected by everything in order to come to faith, be his child, and then move on with his plan for you and so forth. That's the way election looks at things is that God chose you and then God moved history in order that you. Get it?
That's, that's the election. It's not the only doctrine, but it's the doctrine of election. Then we have um, God is uh, immense. How is this different from God is, uh, for example, omnipresent? Well, immense is broad and infinite and that he cannot be measured. Um, uh, the way that the, that the dogmaticians say is he is not to be grasped, but to grasp. Okay. Um, and then with omnipresent, which I think I have next, one of the seven, are, are, are there five? Five omnis. Omnipresent is the first one um, of these. Um, with respect to creatures, he governs us. He's always with us. He's never idle. He is always at work. The second of the five omnis, omnipotent, all-powerful. And this really involves anything that's like a supernatural act, a miracle, the powerful actions of God, creation, um, preservation, and so forth. Um, the third one, probably the last one you, you learned in catechism class, after omnipresent and omnipotent is omniscient. Um, which is that he knows specifically the thoughts of man and that when God thinks, he does not know or learn by deduction or by reason. That's a process. God simply knows. He is simple. He just knows. Um, yeah, and, and then when God knows something and then acts on it, the Bible uses a special term. This is according to God's good pleasure. Have you heard that term? Once in a while, that's, that's a reflection of this doctrine, that he is omniscient. But then we move to something very similar that you may never have heard before, that he is omnisapient. Sapient is the term for wisdom. So he is all-wise, that is not changeable in his wisdom. So he knows, for example, not only the way and the means for our salvation, but he acts on it for our sake. Um, and this is also then for our confidence when we pray. You are wise, you know all things. And how do we usually put it? I put all things in your hands. Yeah. The, the, the fifth of the omnis uh, is omnisanct. And this one we sing, or we did in the old liturgy, all holy father. So it's all holy. Um, and uh, the idea that God is holy or blessed um, is when we have, uh, for example, a death, and we say that the, de the dead die in the Lord. They are received into his holiness. We usually identify the word holy with negatives. Holy means to have no sin, no gaps, no mistakes, and so forth. Those are all really negative terms. None of this, none of that. Do you see how we have to do it the way Hebrew does sometimes? Because holy means really, in a sense, pure. It is, what's the best, uh, maybe, illustration of holiness? The, the bug zapper? In a sense, you know, where are the bugs alive? When they're not zapped. Where are they zapped? When they touch the thing. Zip, you know, bzz, that's what that is. And who can approach God? No one can approach God. He's holy. 
in, in a sense, he's like a bug zapper. Um, what does he do, though? When he draws us in, unlike a bug zapper, which doesn't have mercy, right? Um, God draws us in by making us able to come in with his own. So it's what happens if a bug zapper touches a bug zapper? John, do you, have you ever, do you ever play with those things when you were a kid and find out? I don't know if they can touch. Does the world come to an end if two bug zappers touch? Maybe if you have to make one upside down. I don't know what they... Yeah, Mark? If they're at the same potential, Nothing happens. Yeah. It should be like touching two Christmas tree bulbs. Nothing should happen at all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and then we go to uh, the last couple. God is... And we're beyond our time, but we started late. God is merciful. God is just. Uh, God is good. God is true. Um, he has the only truly free will. Um, but he is good and divine. He works for the good of those who love him. Okay. I'm sorry, we, I, I, I maybe rushed a couple of those and maybe we, if you want we can come back to one uh, next time. But we'll, we'll leave it there at verse 27 and we'll pick it up there again next time. Until then, God bless all of you. Um, thanks for letting me do this. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.